Today's guest is a fantasy example of a writer's life. Laura Risman is a New York Times and Tea Magazine contributor, Monocle's Italian correspondent and author of Wallpaper's Guide to Milan. Laura is the authoritative voice of Italy for the English reading audience. Her stories range from riotous palazzo parties in Milano to dining at the arty restaurants in the Italian Alps. A Boston native, Laura shares how a series of spontaneous life decisions led her to Italy and how a student exchange program designated for Havana set her on the path to pursue an artist's life. Here's Laura on the line. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining me today. First things first, where in the world are you right now? So right now I am at my present home in Lucca in Tuscany, surrounded by boxes because I'm about to move to Florence. How exciting. And how long have you lived in Italy for? Uh, I moved to Italy 10 years ago, first seven years in Milan. And then after that, I moved to Lucca. And now I'm ready for my next city. And what brought you to Italy? Well, I moved from New York. I was in New York for a long time, for 12 years, ever since I started university. I stayed there all through my 20s. And then I met my future husband, Pontus. And since he was Swedish, we decided we were going to move over to Europe and started out in Paris. But from Paris, we decided we wanted to move somewhere friendlier. So we took sort of a shot in the dark and moved to Italy because we thought it would be friendly, basically. And it is friendly. So... That worked out. How did you meet Pontus? Um, I met him in a restaurant (laughs) in New York. It was basically like the bar where I would go almost every night to hang out with my friends. It was where everyone hung out, this place that was called Good World down on the Lower East Side in New York. And he was the chef there. It was this Swedish place and he is Swedish. I was hanging out there for so long and hadn't really ever met the chef. And then I finally did. It was love ever since, at least on my end. (laughs) I love this story so much because you guys have such an adventurous life ever since meeting. Like when you were hanging out at this bar, and I think you told me in in Florence, nobody went there to eat. It was like purely a drinking place. So he was the chef there. (laughs) Tell me more about how you uh, mustered a meal at this drinking hole. (laughs) I mean, I never ate there. I only drank there but those were days when I didn't really eat that much I was really all about just like hanging out and drinking as were all of my friends I was youth yeah Um, the golden years of New York right (laughs) it was great it was so great I mean I never even thought about the chef being there he was there cooking up Swedish food and he is a fantastic chef but the food at the restaurant was not good. I mean, it was a wonderful place, a magical place, one of those places that I will always be sad no longer exists in New York. But the food was terrible. And at the time you met Pontus, were you already writing or what exactly was your your job at the time? Honestly, with writing, uh, never saw myself as a writer. I always liked writing. But I never studied writing. I never would have seen a career for myself in writing. It just seemed like something that was too too much of a distant dream, honestly. So at that point, I was making jewelry. I was designing jewelry. And to support that passion, which was fairly expensive and hard to make a living with, I was doing things like cocktail, waitressing and bartending and all kinds of bullshit jobs like that. And then, yeah, I stayed with 
with making jewelry for for years and at a certain point I started writing just taking on really really small writing jobs for websites you know doing little travel pieces and stories about local culture and I found it so fun I found it so interesting and I was doing trend forecasting at that point trend forecasting for fashion where I would do these reports on you know what the upcoming trends would be in clothes and in fabrics and all these things I ended up adding some writing to that and I found it so satisfying so satisfying that I decided to push it a little more and then I don't know at a certain point it started going well so I decided to stick with it I think you mentioned uh, in the pre-interview too that when you started writing, it sort of felt like the path of least resistance. And I love that you mentioned that you started out working for titles like the Olive Oil Times. Yes, pre-New York Times, there was the (laughs) Olive Oil Times. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about this. I would love to know how you developed your writing career because I think you're such a wonderful writer and you you obviously work for the best titles in the world and you're also the voice for like the Western world about Italy. I'm very happy to be able to contribute what I can to those publications. There are other writers as well in Italy who are doing really important work. And, you know, I mean, there's a whole range of issues to cover in Italy. But you have the best beat, I think. (laughs) I would agree with you on that count, honestly. (laughs) I don't know how anyone gets to choose a beat like mine, which, as you know, covers fashion, art, travel, design, food, and wine. I wouldn't even have ever dreamed that that was a possibility. But since it is, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> yeah. Someone has to do the job, right? Right. Someone has to taste the wine. And so how did you develop your voice when you first started? I mean, I don't think I really had an idea of developing my voice when I first started. I'm self-taught as a writer, so I didn't have this concept of like, you know, this is how I need to approach writing, and this is my ultimate goal, and someday I'll be writing for the New York Times, and I'll be doing... I was just doing it one piece at a time and enjoying what I was doing. And then at a certain point, you know, a few years into it, I realized there was something I was always trying to do with my stories, which was to create something that was more narrative and more about experiences, you know, and giving readers the direct experience of what I was experiencing or giving readers the experience that someone like a fashion designer has rather than doing like a straight news story. You know, it it just became clear to me through doing it, but I would never have been able to define it at the beginning. So there's often this preconception that you need to live in one of the first tier metropolitan cities if you want to land the most prestigious writing jobs. And given that you found your footing being the central Italy correspondent, what has been the process in finding your work outside of a city like New York or London? Well, I think being in Milan was really important for developing my career. You know, I was there for seven years and I was there at a really interesting moment when Milan went from being the sleepy provincial city to being a very international city and a booming city and a place that people, especially, you know, Americans and British people had a big interest in. I got a lot of requests for stories from Milan, you know, and it's not like being in London or being in New York where people who are trying to write in English, there's just no shortage of them, you know, so the competition is huge. But when you're in a more specialized place, you know, when you're in Milan or 
when you're in Tuscany even more, it's just a different story. Like people need you to tell the stories that are there. So I think as a writer, it's a really interesting thing to think about not being in London or being in New York so that you're close to the editors and maybe, you know, you're top of editors' minds because you go to coffee together or something, but to think about a place that you can uniquely, you can be the storyteller for. I think that's really important. That's how I think about my position in Italy is that I'm really lucky to be able to see things firsthand and tell these stories for an English-speaking audience because so many of the stories that you end up reading in the English language press are told by people who live in those countries and then they come to Italy just to report on something, which is a completely different perspective because you don't have the granular detail for the culture. I think that is a really, really great point that you move to Milan to be close to the sort of stories or maybe even just closer to the types of things you wanted to experience directly. And it's translated into things that naturally you wanted to cover and just made sense for the direction of things that you wanted to write about. Exactly. I mean, like we were saying before, my beat is fairly wide. And it's wide because I never started out saying, I'm dying to be a fashion writer, you know, so I'm going to specialize in fashion. I just started writing about the things that I was attracted to naturally, you know, and so that is not just one thing. I'm attracted to a lot more than just fashion. So, as you know, I am a great lover of natural wine. So, you know, when that came into my life, I started writing about that. And it's it's really nice to be able to just share your passions with people and share your experiences, but to also understand things. I mean, I think there's a certain, for lack of a better word, there's a certain shallowness in not being specialized in one field, but then you're also able to think about each subject that you're writing about in a way that connects it to a wider field of things, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I write about fashion, I'm not only writing about a designer and thinking about them in terms of the world of fashion, you know, I'm thinking about them in in the social world, in the cultural world, in the political world, and in how it relates to everyday people. You know, there are two different approaches to writing and both of them are, are valid. It's just, that's the one that I've chosen. And I'm so curious to learn, what do you look for when you're writing a story? Uh, when I'm writing a story, generally what I am most interested in looking for is first of all a narrative that I can relay. I'm much more into a story where I can talk about the actual experience of something, you know, and bring readers along for the ride with me rather than just relaying the facts of a situation. And then I think there's a lot that I'm looking for in that experience. You know, there's the sensorial aspect that I want to recount because I'm very passionate that people should just be more aware of their senses and the way that they're taking in things in everyday life and be more conscientious of that so that they're more aware of being alive in the end, you know, more aware of the process from the data we're taking in from all of our senses and how we're turning it into consciousness and understanding, you know, how we're turning that into the process of being human beings. That's fundamental for me. You grew up in the U.S., correct? Yes. I feel that expats have a very romanticized view on their chosen home. This is why I love your writing so much. Things that maybe somebody who grew up in Italy is so accustomed to. When I read your stories, I really feel the transportive elements of someone who understands that the things that you're experiencing is not to be taken for granted. 
there's like these celebratory moments and perhaps it's because I am like a North American reader, but you know, there's just things that are just quintessentially not North American. And there's a lot of themes in your writing that are just strictly Italian. It's just like things that are emphasized with the senses, things that happen around a dinner table. These are things that are so purely Italian. And I'm so curious, how did you develop this sense of telling this story there's like this constant theme of like a celebration of life and is this something that became a bit more apparent when you moved to Italy well I think that's always been a theme for me I've been an existentialist ever since I was a teenager honestly I think I read my first like Sartre book when I was 15 it was just like yes 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 (laughs) all of this and I've just always have a huge passion for that way of viewing life I read this great quote from Camus the other day, which I'm not going to be able to quote directly, unfortunately, but it was something along the lines of the worst sin against life is to live it as if you're expecting another life and not to live the life that you have in front of you fully. If you could just synthesize everything that I believe comes down to that. And so I always had that feeling. I had that feeling when I lived in New York and being able to live in Italy just because I find it to be a beautiful and fascinating country is endlessly rewarding. I ride my bike around with a huge smile on my face. I never get sick of looking at all these medieval buildings. I still find it miraculous. I'm moving to a place in Florence that's from the 1500s. You know, these things just thrill me. I don't know. I I find it so exciting. I find it so exciting to be alive and to experience the world through the senses and translate it into awareness, as I was saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, the idea of being like a permanent traveler, which is what I am, you know, which is what maybe being an expat is. It's like you're permanently a traveler. You're never you're never an insider fully. You know, you're always an outsider not in a bad way, you know, it's not that I don't feel accepted here, but you're never so accustomed to things that you take them for granted. You're still looking at everything with open eyes all the time because it's always surprising, which is the beauty of travel in the end, right? That's why we travel. We want our eyes to be open. We want to have these new experiences that remind us to be curious and to be connected and to be aware. And living in another country, for me, really does that on a daily basis. Yeah, I love that so much. It's really like you will always have an outside appreciation for these experiences. Yeah, you know, I mean, the things like you were saying, right, that are just so Italian and I'm presenting them as an outsider at the table telling you what these experiences are that are just so incredibly Italian, then it just never gets old for me. I don't know. It's always surprising. It's always... Uh. No, I, lo- I love this. So I think this is one of the reasons why when when we met, we, we met in the most romantic setting. It was like the day before quarantine officially started in Italy. And we were having natural wine at sunset mm-hmm. on a hilltop overlooking a vineyard. Um, at sunset, but we started at lunch. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yes, I think in my in my memory, I just wanted to add the sunset part. There was a sunset. There but, was, you know, yes. Because we were there later. for about 24 hours. So you have this beautiful, romantic, rose-colored glasses view of the world. And have you always had this notion for life? And what was your first inclination to travel as somebody who's always had a wandering spirit? To be honest, I grew up in a place that was like, horrendous to me I was like so mad that I grew up in this place 
Anyways, <laughs> I grew up in this like, suburb of Boston that it was full of crime when I was growing up. It was full of violence, physically very ugly. And I was kind of furious. I was just like, this is not what life is. This is not what I want. Like, there's so much more to life. I don't want to see violence like this. I don't want to be around negativity like this. And so my first move was to get myself to New York because I just wanted to feel possibility around me, you know, and there's no better city for feeling possibility. And I was there for a long time and just always loved travel, but always loved travel in this particular way, which is long-term travel, you know, just like traveling to another country and settling there for a bit, you know, for a month or six months or 10 years, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But even after 10 years, you know, I haven't lost the feeling of being a traveler, of looking at things with this sense of amazement. I have always had this romantic view that, like, I want to be traveling. I want to see beauty. I want to experience things. I'm very excited about it all. (laughs) But it actually starts in this somewhat negative place, you know, this idea of, like, being a teenager stuck somewhere you hate, which I think maybe not everyone's background is the same as mine, but everyone can relate to hating where you are as a teenager. What's really funny theme that's emerged from all of the interviews I've been conducting is that all of these hardcore travelers that I've met actually didn't come from these really beautiful, picturesque upbringings. I myself included, like grew up in the suburbs. And I think it's that really sustained daydream of knowing that there's a beautiful big world out there and we're not a part of it is what fuels this deep imprint and desire to travel the world. That's so interesting that you're finding that with other people and, you know, that you feel that way yourself. And I definitely feel that is my motivation. Like, yes, always experiencing these beautiful places. I'm also always sort of running away from where I came from, in a sense. Yes, it's the escapism. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I mean, I think we need to be motivated. I mean, because when you're a kid or when you're a teenager, you don't have that much freedom, you know, you can't choose your life. But as soon as you hit 18, you're free, you know, and so that's when you have to start being like, here's what would make me happy, you know, here's how I'm going to shape my life and And not be so intimidated to do what you're supposed to do, but do instead what you dream of doing. I know that sounds a little bit corny, but no, it's it's wonderful. (laughs) And what was your first trip as an adult? Oh, my first trip was to to Paris. I was 19 and I had a friend from college who was from Paris. So he invited me. He invited me to come visit, but I hadn't really thought about it. I was just like, sure, I'm coming to visit for a month, (laughs) which probably was not the most polite thing to do. But (laughs) anyway, I came for a month and had the most dreamy time, as you can imagine, you know, for someone they grew up in a place they hated and that was so ugly and horrendous to go to the most romantic city in the world. And we went on a road trip and we went down to the south of France and, you know, he taught me how to smoke rolled cigarettes and it was fantastic. It was all fantastic. Everything was so beautiful, you know. I mean, the impressions I have from that trip are still so strong within me. You know, we passed all these fields of sunflowers on the way Mm -hmm. and the sunflowers would be obviously facing the sun, you know, these whole fields of flowers just facing the sun that would be changing throughout the day as we were driving. And it was just the first time I, I had seen whole fields of sunflowers. And then in the background, there were always castles 
And obviously, I grew up in America. I had never seen a castle except the Disney castle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty exciting. That's That sounds so lovely. You just made me think about how yesterday the sun came into my living room and I had a deep appreciation of it shifting through my living room. And your description of a field of sunflowers just does not even compare to... <laughs> The New York landscape we experience here. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's all about being aware of just that sunlight moving through your room. You know, like these are the the experiences we need to pay attention to every day and which traveling or living in a country that's not your own that you choose because you want to be there, it really make you aware of. I remember you mentioned that you did a study abroad program when you were applying to colleges. Can you tell me a little bit about this experience? Yeah, I did it during college. I did it during my junior year of college. Originally, I was supposed to go to Cuba, but then the law changed at the last minute, so people couldn't go study in Cuba anymore. So I was just scrambling to find a program I could do. And I found this program in Oaxaca, which was a place I knew nothing about, nothing. But, you know, they had a slot open for me. So the month before I signed up and I went down to Oaxaca and, you know, this was years ago. Like nobody talked about Oaxaca. Oh, it was 20 years ago. You were ahead of the curve. <laughs> Without even meaning to be, because I had no idea where I was going. And did you know but how to it, pronounce it? <laughs> I had to ask someone. Luckily, I made a written request, and <laughs> they accepted me and told me how to pronounce it. And then I got to go to this place that was, you know, even though it was just the next country over from the United States, had a culture that was completely diverse from anything that I knew and it was just this immersion in a totally different world and I was crazy about it I was crazy about the experience I think it made me realize that you don't have to be in a big city to experience something interesting because mm. it's not only what is the latest in culture you know what's the most contemporary in culture that's interesting you know there's just something general in human culture that's very interesting and here it was like I got to experience this culture that in many ways was still very linked to its pre-Columbian roots which, I mean, seems like a miracle, you know, yeah. <laughs> in, in this millennium. And what places have you visited that's left a long-lasting imprint on who you are today? I think the younger you are when you visit someplace, the heavier the impression is, you know, the more it does to to form what you know of the world, right? Because you're still so fresh to things. So obviously the experience in Oaxaca was extremely important. And then after Oaxaca, I spent the summer in Cuba, which really made a strong impression on me. I spent three months there, snuck in, and just lived with this Cuban woman pretending to be her son's fiance, <laughs> and and got to experience like a real Cuban life there with her. It was it was wild. It was just wild to see the country at that point in time you know still very communist not only in its economy but also in its culture you know an incredible culture of working together and what drew you to cuba uh, i've always been a bit of a marxist to be honest and it just seemed so i was so curious you know to see what an alternative to the united states would look like and it was very alternative in so many ways in its setup but also in the culture, like it was just the people would like stop and offer me a ride on their bicycle, you know, and just because I'd be walking along the side of the road and they would want to share their bicycle with me, you know, which I mean, would never happen in the United States. Can you imagine if somebody stopped when you were walking along the sidewalk in Williamsburg and said, <laughs> hey, 
you know, no, take they a would seat on my over. rack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I'm always constantly on the verge of being run over. <laughs> by bicycles specifically? Yes, by bicycles specifically. <laughs> Well, at least more people are riding. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so this experience in Cuba, did it change your views on Marxism? Or did you find yourself even more drawn to those principles? I mean, you know, of course, no... No country has ever managed to put perfect Marxism into practice. And there (laughs) there were a lot of problems with the way that Cuban society was set up and there was just so much unhappiness around the situation. You know, all the people I met were so frustrated and so incredibly bored. It was remarkable to meet so many people who were just like, I'm so bored. Like, I can't take a bus anywhere. You know, I hear there's this thing called email, like I'm not able to use it. You know, people were just really frustrated. But at the same time, it was, you know, it was interesting to go there right after Mexico, where you saw a level of poverty that just did not exist in Cuba. Never saw anyone who didn't have shoes in Cuba, for example. Oh, wow. there There was a level of literacy that was just remarkable. I mean, I remember one day I was sitting outside of the house where I was staying and I was reading Nietzsche because I was a nerd and Anstelam. And the garbage man like stepped down from the garbage truck that was passing by and started talking to me about Nietzsche. <laughs> you know, like, wow, there are some really interesting as- aspects to this culture. They've managed to have a level of education and, yeah. and medicine and many things that are, are remarkable. But there were a lot of really interesting aspects to, to see firsthand there, even if it wasn't the utopia that I hoped it would be, obviously, but I was young. And I'm, I'm so curious, too, because when I went to Cuba a couple of years ago, it seemed very much like Havana specifically had already been designed to draw in tourism. When you visited Cuba, what was the tourism at the time like? Was it still... Not like that. Yeah. Not like that. I'm curious about. Whatsoever. No one spoke English. I met one woman who spoke a little English. I mean, people had learned other languages, but they learned German and Russian and French. They never learned English. Mm. Think about what a cultural shift that would signify to go from being anti American to welcoming English speaking tourists. So at that point, there were no. American tourists and no one spoke English. And in terms of the tourist culture, there was very little in Havana. There were these remnants of pre-communist Cuba when you had these grand hotels and things, you know, when they were a bit run down and you had to be foreign to go in them. So I would go to them and I would bring the woman, the Cuban woman that I was staying with, and we would go in and I would do the talking, you know, because I was obviously foreign. And she would stay quiet and I would just say like she was my mother. The the real Cuban culture was separated from tourists. I think maybe it still yeah, is. It still um, is, yeah. So she would bring me to those places and do the talking when we went in. So it was really interesting for both of us to be able to experience, you know, the two sides of this culture that were very divided between tourists and locals. I would love to explore the topic of sort of your life philosophies just because you live this very colorful storied life and I'm curious to know what mantras you live by if there are any. For me it's very much just about always recognizing the freedom that you have in every situation and every day. I think it's really important that people realize that they don't shy away from all the choices that they can make. That you don't have to do what 
you're supposed to do or expected to do. That for me is the most important thing, just to question everything, question whether I should be doing something to make myself happy or if it's something I really want to do and questioning if it's outside pressure that's making me do something. And then just really going for what is going to make each day of my life worth living. And currently, what are those moments in your day that defines what makes life worth living? Uh, I mean, it's not a single moment, you know, it's more about having a general sense of pure freedom, feeling like, for one thing, I'm able to do work that I love to do. I'm able to write stories that I'm really interested in. I'm able to have a lot of choice in what I write about. Uh, I'm able to, you know, control my own schedule because I'm a freelancer and just really map things out day by day by what I feel. So I never feel trapped. You know, I never feel like I have to repeat anything I don't want to repeat. Do you have any role models that you look up to? I don't know. Simone de Beauvoir, does that count? Do they yes, have to be absolutely. living? No. <laughs> Carla Lonzi. I'm super into Carla Lonzi. I wish people knew more about her. She's this <laughs> really cool uh, Italian feminist. She died in the 90s. But she was this art critic who just basically like wrote this book about art criticism that people were so upset about because it was so revolutionary that she could never write art criticism again because she used all the artists in their first person voice. <laughs> and then she turned into this crazy radical feminist. I'm obsessed with her. <laughs> She's amazing. Uh, a lot of her stuff hasn't been translated into English, but she has a great diatribe slash manifesto called Let's Spit on Hegel, which is all about rejecting the Hegelian approach to history and to philosophy, which is very masculine and very much about predetermination and doesn't give human beings any freedom and doesn't see any place for women in society. And it's just this fantastic screed that will make you feel great about spitting on Hegel. <laughs> if you're interested. Yes, I'm super interested. What are you currently <laughs> reading at the moment? Uh, I'm reading The Rebel by Camus, which is one of his nonfiction books. Um, it's very political. It's more political than I thought it would be. There's a whole chapter on art that's very interesting. He said, if the world were understood, there would be no artists. Like, you know, we would if we perfectly understood the world, we wouldn't need art. You know, we wouldn't need artists to explore what the world is for us. It's the perfect contemplative quote to to chew on at this time before I forget to motivate I actually, you to be creative exactly to motivate you to be creative <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you a few questions about Italy at the moment or just traveling in Europe in general so what would you be normally covering this time of year if it weren't the pandemic and how has it affected your job if at all <laughs> my job has been drastically changed this year I mean I think most people's has my job is closely tied to traveling you know so that has been off the table for months you know usually in August I would be doing research trips to all different places that I want to write about this year was not the case I only did one trip to Sweden which was mainly to see my husband's parents um, but also to you know to visit some friends and things but yeah I mean traveling it's not the same right now when I got to Sweden Curiously, it was as if there was no no problem, no pandemic. So that was interesting to see. But in Italy, very present. People are very aware. It feels a little bit like being on hold, you know, I think yeah. we all do. 
uh, also with writing about fashion, you know, so many fashion shows were canceled and now we'll see what happens in September. The shows that are scheduled actually go forward. I think that's the hardest thing when you have a really fun career or you have a fun beat when you suddenly realize that all of your interests are non-essential. <laughs> It depends who's defining essential. Exactly. I mean, this is subjective, right? <laughs> it is. You know, we have to remember it is. You know, Sacha is going to tell us it is. And that's very important for me that even these pretty boring and sometimes scary days during quarantine, you have to be, you know, you have to be alive. You have to be aware. You have to be thinking and doing your work and, and, and keeping up you know, with the whole process of being actively alive, but it, it's hard. I had this experience during the quarantine. I was so understimulated. I don't think I told you this. I was so understimulated, so starved for travel, so starved for just input that I started hallucinating smells, like scent memories from trips that I'd done in the past. You know, like being in Sweden at Pontus's parents' country house which has this very particular smell of old wood or being on a hiking trail in Sicily that has the smell of wild mint and helichrysum all these different scents would just wash over me all of a sudden I think because my brain was so bored yeah <laughs> <laughs> just bored. So suddenly starved it's like why are we still here in the house I, I understand that deep craving and um, I'm so curious to understand like what is Italy like right now without the American tourists? Do the Italians miss us? Are they happy that there's no American karaoke happening at their bars? There's and certainly an element of that. I mean, the initial period, I guess, like the first month after the reopening, it was amazing. Florence has never been better. Every place that you've always wanted to go in Florence was empty. You know, the Uffizi, the Duomo, you could just walk in and no one was there. I mean, you couldn't just walk in, you had to reserve in advance because of all the protocols. But mm. if you reserved in advance, I went to the Duomo, Pontus and I were almost the only people in there, you know, versus the like six hour line. So you got to experience the city in a way that it hasn't been, who knows, for decades probably, yeah. and that will never be again. Venice too, you know, just empty. But now people in Europe are traveling. There are no Americans, so people who work in tourism and work with restaurants are complaining a lot, but there's still a presence of tourists. I mean, you know, I have mixed feelings about tourists. I am a traveler, so technically I'm always a tourist. Um, but, <laughs> but you're also you know, a local. <laughs> I'm trying to be. I'm just pretending, but trying to fit in. So, you know, it's a tough question with tourists. Why do they yeah. make things just feel so much less authentic and enjoyable? Yeah. So my last question for you is, what advice would you give to an aspiring journalist or any young writer at this time? I would definitely say don't be afraid to write for weird online websites. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just get some practice get some, something published, try your hand at telling the stories you want to tell. Don't feel like you need to only write for, you know, are your like dream magazines. You know, you need to start off with things that are not at all your dream and, and get somewhere else with that and just get a lot of practice in that way. And even though it's a tough market for writing these days, there is a lot of opportunity in that sense. You know, there's a huge need for writing today. I would say don't be a snob and 
right, for whoever's going to publish you at first. I mean, you're a living example of that from the Olive Oil Times to the New York Times. <laughs> well, I hope it can be a good example. Thank you so much, Laura, for your time today. Thank you, Olivia. I can't wait to read your vintage articles on the Olive Oil Times. <laughs> well, I hope to see you in Italy soon. The Art of Travel is created and hosted by Olivia Lopez, produced by Jason Stewart, with music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you then.